a forbidden planet gets the spotlight. This week on Planetary Radio. I'm Sarah Al-Ahmed of the Planetary Society, with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Occasionally, discoveries are made that break our expectations and lead to a greater understanding. This week, Shubham Kanodia, who's the lead researcher on a paper about a forbidden planet called TOI-5202b, joins us to talk about this strange world and why it's upending our understanding of planetary formation. Then, Bruce Betts and I will team up for What's Up and a look back at this week in space history. We'll also let you know what you can look for in the upcoming night sky. But first, here are some space updates. Good news, everyone especially for fans of Jupiter. The European Space Agency's JUICE mission to explore Jupiter's icy moons has deployed its previously stuck antenna. It was only just about a month ago that I was chatting with Olivier Vitas, project scientist for the JUICE mission. We were so excited about this mission's observations of Jupiter's moons, but then the mission hit a snag. The antenna on one of the instruments failed to deploy after its launch in April. It took some doing, but the mission engineers finally managed to deploy the antenna by using another moving part on the spacecraft to dislodge a jammed pin. Now you're thinking with portals. And there's even more good news from the Jovian system. Some planetary radio fans will remember back when I spoke to Scott Bolton in January. He's the principal investigator for NASA's Juno mission to Jupiter. At the time, he discussed the mission's upcoming observations of the wacky volcanic moon Io. Well, buckle up, because the first images of Io came back, and they're so cool. Juno's been studying Jupiter from orbit since 2016, and now it's finally turning its sights to the innermost of Jupiter's large moons. Over a series of flybys, the spacecraft will observe Io's volcanoes. It'll also measure how often they erupt, how bright and hot they get, their groupings, and even the shapes of their lava flows. I can't wait for the next close passes so we can learn even more about this strange, eruptive, pizza-looking moon. You can learn more about these and other stories in the May 19th edition of our weekly newsletter, The Downlink. Read it or subscribe to have it sent to your inbox for free every Friday at planetary.org downlink. Now, on to the Forbidden Planet. In an astounding discovery that challenges our understanding of planetary formation, a group of astronomers under the leadership of Carnegie's Shubham Kanodia have discovered a weird planetary system. It has a large gas giant orbiting a small red dwarf star called TOI-5205. This discovery was featured in the Astronomical Journal. Red dwarf stars are way more common than stars like our Sun, but they're generally considered unlikely hosts for gas giants because of their formation histories. The newfound planet, called TOI-5205b, was first detected by NASA's Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, or TESS. When that world passes in front of its star from our perspective here on Earth, it blocks about 7% of its host star's light. That makes it one of the largest known exoplanet transits we've ever discovered. I had to know more. And thankfully, Dr. Shubham Kanodia, the lead researcher on the paper and a Carnegie postdoctoral fellow, was happy to share. Hi, Shubham. Hello. Despite everything we know about space, new discoveries are being made all the time, and some of them are fundamentally challenging our understanding of the universe. You work specifically studying giant planets around M dwarf stars. How did you get interested in the subject? I started with my PhD at Penn State, where I started building instruments. 
So I've always been interested in exoplanets. And what we realized is when I got to Penn State, there's a niche that hasn't been fulfilled yet, and that's to study M-dwarfs. So M-dwarfs are basically stars that are like the sun, but they are much cooler than the sun. So the sun, for reference, is something around 6,000 degrees, whereas M-dwarfs are about half of that in temperature. So they're much cooler, much redder. They're much smaller than the sun, so they're extremely faint. But the interesting thing is they, they form like 75% of the galaxy. So there are like hundreds of billions of M-dwarfs out there. But because they're so small and red, and because the Earth doesn't go around an M-dwarf, traditionally they have been ignored when it comes to planet studies. But what we realized is that because they are smaller and lower in mass, because they're lighter than the sun, planets going around these stars should be easier to find if we can get over the fact that these stars are much redder. So they require near-infrared instruments instead of the optical ones that we typically use to find exoplanets. So that's how I started and that's how I got into M-Dwarfs, by trying to build these instruments at Penn State and just being really lucky to be part of a great team and get involved there. Is it easier for us to find larger planets around these types of stars? And is that why you're kind of focusing your efforts there? It should be easier to find these planets, just if you think about because they're bigger, they'll have larger signals. If you think of it like a car's headlight and you have a fly going in front of it, that's typically what we're trying to do. That's the amount of light that's being blocked by a planet or, or think of a stadium light. Maybe that's more accurate. So if, you ha- if you're looking at the light from a stadium, like the, those floodlights, and you have a tiny moth or a fly go in front of it, that's what it's like to find an Earth in front of a solar type star. That, that's the tiny amount of light being blocked. Now, because these M-dwarfs are smaller, instead of a stadium floodlight, I don't know, you can think of something that's maybe a hundredth the brightness of a stadium floodlight. And it, it, it should still be fairly difficult to find an Earth-like planet, but because the, the giant planets are larger, instead of a fly, you know, maybe you have, I don't know, a pigeon going in front of the light. So it's just going to block more light. And similarly, it should be easier to measure the mass of these objects because they are, they are more massive. And what we do to measure the mass is the Doppler effect. So it's basically something similar to like if you have a, a siren from a fire brigade going around you. And as it's approaching you, it's going to sound red, blue shifted. And as it's going away from you, that the, the pitch is going to change. So that's the same thing we do, but with the light from the star, as the star is wobbling back and forth because of the planet. So I say it should be easier to find these objects. But in reality, the problem is they're extremely, extremely rare. So you need to look at a lot of stars to find one of these objects. But most of the planets these red stars have are really small Earth-like planets. So it's great if you're trying to find Earth-like planets, which in principle could have life on them. But at the moment, what we're going after is trying to find giant planets because we think that those are much harder to explain and are a bigger mystery than just finding Earth-like planets. Is that what your research team was trying to accomplish here? Were you looking for this type of strange large planet, or did you kind of stumble upon it in your broader research on this type of planetary system? So the group I'm part of, we focus, a large fraction of us focus on these giant planets around low-mass stars. So we've coined the term GEMS, which is basically giant exoplanets around M-dwarf stars. And and I think one thing to note here is that astronomers love their acronyms. So if, if you go through the astronomy literature, there's full of random jargon, which makes no sense. And it turns out it's just acronyms that some bored astronomer has come up with for some proposal or paper. So GEMS is one of them. That, that was our attempt at calling these planets. So what we're doing over here is we realize that 
now, and in particular, this is the advantage of the recent space telescope that's NASA's test mission. So that's the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, which was launched a few years back. That is pretty much looking at the entire sky every 27 days, or, or a patch of the sky every 27 days. But over a couple of years, it looks at the entire sky. And because it's looking at the entire sky, it's looking at millions of these envelopes. And this is pretty much the first time where we have a survey that's looking at so many envelopes, which is the only reason why we can find a reasonable number of these objects, these giant planets, which so far have been really, really difficult to find with smaller samples. So that's how we started getting into this. We realized that this opportunity with test, the test mission and the instruments we built at Penn State to measure their masses and confirm these planets. I think to put this in context, it, it was maybe 30 years ago we were discovering the first exoplanets ever. And when I was getting my degree in astrophysics, I did my research originally in finding exoplanets, and we were literally doing it one planet, one star at a time with telescopes on Earth. And then the Kepler Space Telescope launched in 2009 and completely changed the game. But we've had a recent explosion of exoplanetary discoveries specifically because of TESS. And it only launched, I think, five years ago. And it's literally created so much data that we're only just beginning to be able to comb through it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like you mentioned the Kepler mission, I think that was one of the biggest revolutions of the past decade where it just said that just one patch of the sky and completely transformed our understanding of what exoplanets look like, what their numbers are, what's the most common type of exoplanet. I mean, uh, a slight tangent here, but after the Kepler mission, we realized that the most common type of exoplanet in the galaxy is a planet that, in fact, doesn't even exist in our solar system. It's the super-Earth mini-Neptune class of planets, which are just slightly bigger than Earth, slightly smaller than Neptune, and something like that doesn't exist in the solar system. So it was a complete mystery as to how do these objects form and why doesn't one orbit the sun. But Kepler was looking at just one part of the sky up until the prime mission. And, and now we have TESS, which is looking at the entire sky, and it has its pros and cons. But I think for our project, the biggest advantage of TESS is that it's looking at so many envelopes that we can then follow up from the ground. So was your team just combing through a pile of data on a bunch of different planets of this type when you suddenly stumbled upon one that didn't seem normal? No. So the way we go about this is we start by looking at, so there are certain planet candidates that are released by the test science team. So we go through some of those, but then we also in parallel have our own effort where we basically download all the test data and try to find signatures of planets around M dwarf stars. So these are the red stars. And then we see the signatures, which are really large. So if you have a big planet going in front of a small star, it's going to block a lot of light. So those are the kind of dips we look for in the light from the star, these really massive, large transit depths. And when we find one of those, that gets us interested. And we start curating a catalog of these, which we slowly try to follow up, validate, and see which ones of them are real planets. And it turns out that 50% of them, these are not, that they're not planets, it's either another star, it's some other kind of what we call a false positive, so it's a false positive signal, which we try to weed out and eliminate before whatever is left is then ex extensively followed up to characterize it, its planetary nature. What kind of follow-up observations did you do to really make sure that this is a real planet and not just some really strange quirk? Yeah, because it was so unexpected in some sense that how is such a massive planet orbiting such a small star 
And for reference, this star is something like 40% the mass or radius of the sun. So it's a really small star. Uh, and the planet is slightly bigger than Jupiter. So but what we but we started off with doing is just getting some what we call reconnaissance radial velocity. So these are just Doppler measurements, but not necessarily at the highest precision. So we started off by getting a couple of them, which ruled out most of the astrophysical false positives. They ruled out that the object going around the star is not another star. It's not a massive substellar object. So it's either a low mass, what we call a brown dwarf, or indeed a planet in itself. So that confirms the fact that, okay, now things are going to get exciting. So even if it's a brown dwarf or a planet, in both scenarios, this would be quite a new discovery and would be a challenge to explain. So far, we've just been kind of calling this the exoplanet, but that's because its name is TOI5205b. And, you know, and as <laughs> astronomers do, we come up with all these fun acronyms and nicknames. Does your team have some kind of nickname for this thing so you don't continuously get tongue-tied trying to say it over and over again? Not really. I think by this point, we've just resigned ourselves to, the, to our faith that we just have random four-digit names for most of these objects. So this one is 5205, and, and each of the other ones we go after and confirm is basically named after the host star. DOI stands for TESS Object of Interest because it was discovered by TESS. I mean, it has some other names, but those are even uglier and much longer. So we just stick with the DOI. It would be really fascinating to find out that this kind of world is not actually forbidden, you know? That's what people are calling it in articles, the forbidden planet. But maybe planetary disks just start collapsing into planets earlier, and maybe larger planets form around these M-dwarfs more often than we think. Right. And and I think that's the next part of our in parallel that we're trying to do is just continue going through the test data. And that's the survey we are currently conducting by systematically going through the test data, try to understand how frequently do these objects really occur. And there have been a few preliminary studies which indicate that they're fairly rare. And I guess that's not a surprise. But what we're trying to do is by looking at about a million M-dwarfs, try to get a precise estimate on what the occurrence of these objects is. And then in parallel, we have some other follow-up programs. For example, I mentioned the JWST survey that just got accepted. Planetary formation is just such a cool subject, and we're only just beginning to study it. So there's a lot we don't understand. Yeah, people have been studying this for decades, and I think some really, really smart and talented people, but it's a fairly complex problem. It's really interesting because even in our solar system, we think that say Jupiter, as an example, formed closer into the sun and then migrated outwards. And how these planets move from place to place and why and how that has to do with their formation and how it impacts other planets in the system is absolutely fascinating. There's still lots of hypotheses as to how a solar system formed. And I think that's all they are, hypotheses. And we come up with a new one and it explains some of our observations, but then we come up with new observations which break the hypotheses. And, and I don't think we can really say we have a uniform theory that's universally accepted in terms of how the solar system formed, because we've just started to understand Jupiter's atmosphere slightly better, say the Juno mission or its interior slightly better. And we see that it couldn't have formed where it's found right now. So it probably formed in a different location and then moved in and then probably moved back out and then did all kinds of weird dances with the other planets affecting them. So it, it's quite a mystery as to how these objects form, even in the solar system, let alone outside. In some sense, it's easier to study the solar system because we are right here. It's, it's, there's a lot more data, a lot more photons. 
On the other hand, exoplanets offer us a lot more statistics because we can find thousands of them, where the solar system is just one system which somehow evolved and formed in, in a certain manner. Yeah, I want to say three months ago, I had the opportunity to talk to Jacob Lustig-Jäger, who's a member of one of the teams that's going to be looking at the Trappist planets with JWST. And I cannot express how excited I am about this. I know that we're already beginning to look at these worlds, but that many Earth-like planets around a star with the potential for being habitable is just absolutely stunning. And I hope at least one of them turns out some really cool results. They're not just all lifeless rocks. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the hope. I think lots of people have their fingers and toes and everything else crossed, hoping that one of them has an atmosphere that you can detect. Did you celebrate when you found out that you're going to be able to use JWST to actually follow up on your research? Yeah, I think that was definitely a big surprise. And and while we were we put our best foot forward, it was also a fairly ambitious proposal in terms of what we expected. It was a fairly large proposal. I think this was the largest proposal to get accepted in exoplanets this cycle. And we are trying to observe atmospheres for planets that have never been looked at before with either JWST or Hubble HST. So this was a fairly new region of parameter space that has not been looked at. And instead of starting with one, we said we'll look at seven of them and basically try to understand them as a population and then compare them with existing surveys and data. So that was our goal. So it was definitely a surprise. I think we somehow managed to get it and we're still surprised how, <laughs> but we somehow <laughs> managed to get the time. And now it's just a matter of getting the data and, and making the most of the data and seeing what we find there. Well, thanks for sharing this with us. And I'm really intrigued to learn what this is going to tell us. It'll be a little while before you get all your results back from JWST. But if you find something really cool, I'd be very interested to talk to you again in the future, because this is only just the beginning of researching this population of planets. And as much as people want to call it forbidden, I think almost nothing is forbidden in space. Things are weird. And the more we learn, the more we stumble over things that we particularly don't understand, that's where the true revelations in science come from. I mean, the first exoplanet was found in a location that we didn't expect. So that was in some sense forbidden. And then fast forward 25 years, there's now about 5,000 of them and like thousands of people studying them. So yeah, who knows what the next few years hold. I'm so excited for all the, the kids out there that are just getting excited about space. We're going to have access to all of this data. It's absolutely startling. I think it's a very exciting time going forward. Yeah, for exoplanet discovery, for returning to the moon, for exploring other worlds with quadcopters, finally learning more about Venus. It feels like right now is just an absolute renaissance in astronomy. I'm also really excited, too, about the potential for sending a mission to Uranus and hopefully someday Neptune. But as you said, most of the planets we're finding are these kinds of mini Neptune type planets. And we don't even understand what's going on with the icy giants in our own solar system yet. Right. Just because they're so far away and it takes so long to reach them. I mean, most of our understanding of our, of our solar system is informed by like missions like Pioneer and Voyager, which if you believe was launched in the 70s and even before that. So there's a few decades, in fact, many decades that have elapsed since then. And I think lots of people are hoping that we can convince the funding agencies to have the next flagship missions be to the icy giants. It's time. It's absolutely time. I'm happy that Voyager is still chugging along. And 
they only just recently managed to extend the lifetime on Voyager 2 by kind of swapping around where all the battery power is going within that poor probe out there in the dark, far from Earth and interstellar space. But Voyager can't be our only understanding of those planets forever. we got to go back. It's almost 50 years now since Voyager 2 launched. People are working on a lot of new, both ground-based and space-based missions. I mean, from the ground, I think the next revolution will be from the so-called ELTs, the extremely large telescopes, these really, really massive, like 30, 40, 25-meter telescopes that are currently being planned and constructed in different parts of the world, which will give us just so much, so many photons from these stars that we can start to things that would have been unimaginable even 10 years back. And, and then from the space, people are starting to work on the successor for JWST, like the Habitable Worlds Observatory, the HWO, which will basically be able to do the same things as JWST, but for solar-type stars and actually hopefully find an Earth analog. And I mean, that will be a few decades out. But in the interim, you have missions like the Roman Space Telescope, named after Nancy Grace Roman, pioneer at NASA, uh, which can, I think, will also be a game-changer because it's scheduled to find maybe thousands of exoplanets by itself. It's so exciting. Well, thanks for joining me, Shubham. And I wish you and your team luck, because studying that many exoplanets as JWST, that's ambitious, but I believe you can pull it off. Thank you. Thank you. I love it when people discover things in space that we didn't expect. The more you look into it, the more you realize just how wacky, diverse, and beautiful this universe really is. You can hear the extended version of my interview with Shubham Kanodia, the lead researcher behind the discovery of the Forbidden Planet, at planetary.org slash radio, or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'll be right back for What's Up after this short break. Ready to level up your space game? Hi, I'm Amber, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society, and we are launching our brand new digital member community. This is a place that's built exclusively for Planetary Society members. Here you can connect with fellow members from around the world, join live events you won't get anywhere else, and delve deeper into the wonders of our cosmos and the missions that explore them. It's all about putting the society in the Planetary Society. I'll see you on the digital frontier. Hello, I'm George Takei, and as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism, boldly going where no one had gone before. I want you to know about a very special organization called the Planetary Society. They are working to make the future that Star Trek represents a reality. Boldly go to build our future. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. Now let's check in with Bruce Betts. He's on a hype train right now because he's going on vacation to see his son's graduation. We had to record a week early, so I won't be able to share all the wonderful messages that people sent me this week, but that's okay. Sup, Bruce? What's up is what's up. Truth. <laughs> but, but what is up? I mean, what is in the night sky, man? Oh, oh, oh literally. Uh, <laughs> We got Venus looking super bright over in the West. Love it, love it, love it. Check it out in the first couple hours after sunset. Brightest star-like object up there. Got Mars hanging out, getting closer to it. It's dimmer and reddish. When we go to the pre-dawn, we've got Jupiter looking bright and getting easier and easier to see, but still low in the horizon. And Mercury, and it's uh, hanging out in the pre-dawn for a few weeks. 
It will be at its highest point on May 29th. So you can check that out. And Jupiter still above it, much brighter. And Saturn looking yellowish above that. So planets, planets, evening, morning, doesn't matter. You got planets to check out. You know, I should be embarrassed to admit this, but I think Mercury is a planet that I've never looked at through a telescope. It's a nasty little bugger. It's always staying low. It's just bopping around. It's all quick like that Roman god thing that it's named after. The interesting thing about Mercury through a telescope, as I'm sure you know, is that if you have a big enough telescope to resolve it, some you see it go through phases, just like Venus, but even faster. Uh, you don't see much of anything else, nor did anyone else uh, for eons until we started spending spacecraft. All right, let us move. Let's move on before I go off on any more tangents. Let's find a new set of tangents for me in the trivia contest. So I asked you, what will the OSIRIS-REx mission be renamed when it starts its new mission to the asteroid Apophis after it drops off its asteroid Bennu sample at Earth? I would ask you how we've done, but we have no idea because... Well, because we are recording this early because Bruce is going on vacation. Oh, yeah. Blame it on me. Totally your fault. <laughs> but it does mean that I guess people might get a little extra leeway on me for sending the answer in on this one. All right. Well, you're the judge, jury, and uh, giver of gifts on this one. Do a, do a great job, and you can go ahead and insert your brilliant words of wisdom right now. All right. Well, uh, the dice have spoken, and our winner this week is Laura Dodd from Eureka, California. The answer, and I love this one, is Osiris Apex, which is short for Osiris Apophis Explorer. <laughs> I love going from Osiris Rex to Osiris Apex. <laughs> But Laura, you're going to be receiving a Red Sky Core Rulebook from Solar Studios. And clearly the dice rolls are already in your favor because you won this week. So I'm sure it's all going to go well. <laughs> Happy gaming. Wow, that was great. Good job, Sarah. And congratulations, everyone. Way to go. And it turned out the answer, which I had no idea, it turns out to be Osiris Apex. But then you told them that. Short for Osiris Apophis Explorer. But then you told them that. But in case you didn't, I just told them that. Meanwhile, let us move on to our next trivia contest, which is what moons of planets in our solar system, so moons of planets, have average densities greater than or approximately equal to 3 grams per cubic centimeter, or 3,000 kilograms per cubic meter, if you prefer your pure MKS system. And there are, um, hey, I'll just say there, there are three of them. Tell me what they are. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. So these are ones that have densities that are approaching more, that are rockier and not as icy and not as fluffy. Yeah, for people who remember back to high school chemistry class, one gram per cubic centimeter would be water. So definitely a more heavy moon. You have until May 31st at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us your answer. And I've been collecting all these cool exoplanet posters at all the space events I've been going to for the last year or so. So I'm going to go into my collection and select three random exoplanet space posters and send them to the winner this week. Very cool. Random exoplanet space posters. <laughs> but really, though, I mean, I, I love collecting all those NASA artwork posters for each of the different planets. Every time they come out with a new set, I either try to get one in person or print them out to add to my collection. So I'm always happy to add to someone else's space poster collection. All right, everybody, go out there, look on the night sky and think about graduating from college. And Kevin. Ooh, that's a rather personal reference. Thank you and good night. 
Congratulations! Woo, Kevin, woo! We've reached the end of this week's episode of Planetary Radio, but we'll be back next week with the winners of our STEP grant, or Science and Technology Empowered by the Public grant program. I'm going to be away on vacation as I adventure with my family and friends to this year's Electric Daisy Carnival in Las Vegas, Nevada. I'm so excited. But our friend Matt Kaplan, the show's creator and the former host of Planetary Radio, is going to be back to share the grant winner's amazing project proposals. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by our planet-loving members. Mark Helverta and Ray Pauletta are our associate producers. Andrew Lucas is our audio editor. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. And until next week, Ad Astra. Ad Astra.